Now here in Matthew, he says, let him be like a heathen. If you've gone to him three times and said, this needs to be straightened up, you brought him before the church, and the church has admonished him to straighten this thing up, and he will not do it. He said, now you treat that person like a heathen or like a publican. Now let me tell you something. The publicans were in pretty bad repute in that day. Matthew was a tax collector. Publicans were not well, well liked back in that day. Because they would go to the Roman government, many of them being Jews, would go to the Roman government and they would say, for example, I will buy, I will pay you the taxes that you're requesting for Seminole County. And they would give them a check or whatever they gave them in that day to pay for the taxes that were supposed to be collected in Seminole County. Then the publicans could come back and set up a tax booth and charge, go around to each individual home, each individual farm, and levy whatever tax they could possibly just squeeze out of them, and whatever profit they made in taxes, great. And they would really bleed these poor people. The government wasn't doing it. The government had the money they wanted. Then they turned it over to the publicans, and the publicans could go out and just squeeze every cent out of them. You remember, who was a publican in the New Testament? Matthew and who else? Zacchaeus. A little Caesar. Little tiny guy, but he wanted to be, you know, a little Caesar. And so he, he bought the taxes for that county that he lived in, and he was going out. But when Jesus came, he said, every single cent, if I've taken anything dishonestly, I'll give it. See, they were well known for that. That's why the Pharisees couldn't stand it when they saw Jesus sitting with publicans and sinners. They weren't Republicans. They were publicans and sinners, okay? And they said, well, how can you're, I mean, look at, look at the mob that he's with, the publicans over there. You couldn't get any worse group than that. And Jesus said, now, after three warnings, if that person does not repent, you treat him just like that as a heathen and a publican. In other words, start talking to him now. Don't talk to him about it as, as well, one of these days the Lord and you and I are going to get together and probably just say, look, you really need to be saved. This is evidence you've never been born again in the Spirit of God. That's not a happy saying today. When you go around telling people, well, based upon the Word of God, you're not saved, boy, they get upset today. Well, have you know that I have, I believe in Jesus and I've been baptized. In fact, I can speak in tongues and I can do all these other things. Well, that's wonderful, but the Word says this and this and this, and you're not saved. Well, wait a minute. I can go over to this other church and they, they're letting me be an officer of the church. Doesn't make any difference. You're not saved. Based upon the Word of God. Now, that's not a popular approach today, but that's what the Word says. Must be done sometimes. By the fruit, you shall know them. Now, you're not to have any religious communion with them, is what he's saying. And other places says you're not so much as to eat with them. Don't even sit down and eat with them. If you see somebody that's walking disorderly that calls himself a brother, don't sit down and eat with them. How many of you know that that's not being practiced much today? Do you think that the, the times have changed and the Bible doesn't apply here anymore? You know, during our period of sloppy agape now, that doesn't, you know, that, that just doesn't go. It doesn't rub out smoothly. I want you to know that no matter what our society says, we still have one basis of authority. And the Word of God says if you see someone walking in a disorderly manner who calls himself a brother, break off communion with him as a Christian and begin to talk to him about what it means to make Jesus Lord. I recently talked to a man who has been very religious and has gone to all kinds of meetings, but he finally told me, I have never, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, I, I believe in Jesus, but I've never made Jesus Lord of my life. I said, well, you know, I hate to disappoint you, but you can believe in Jesus until your dying day and never see heaven because the demons of hell believe in Jesus and shake. They tremble. But Jesus said, if any man comes to me and hates not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and his own life also, he can't be my disciple. Being a Christian means one committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I died with Christ. He lives his life out through me. My life is committed to him today. There's, there's no secondary road. So you go to them, encourage them, speak to them as an unbeliever, try to get them to commit themselves to Jesus Christ. And the minute they do, they repent of their sins, you forgive them, and you encourage them, and build them up. You say, well, there's some people that I just absolutely cannot forgive. You know, our words must coincide, they must agree with what God's words say in restoring a brother. They must harmonize. 
And when we say that it's impossible for us to forgive someone because of the hurt that they have caused us, then we're not harmonizing with God's Word. If you look in Matthew, the sixth chapter with me, Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. What's the second word there? If. That's a conditional word, isn't it? I want you to notice, if you forgive men their trespasses, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Couldn't be any plainer, could it? Someone says, but you have no idea what they did to me. I don't care what they did to you. I don't care what they did to me. Matthew, the 18th chapter, gives the comparison of millions of dollars indebtedness to one person against one day's salary to someone else. And it's, it's the comparison of God's forgiveness for you and me in comparison to whatever someone else has done to us that we forgive them from our heart. When you ever begin to minister in the area of deliverance, you'll find out that it is impossible for deliverance to be successful until people, even if they don't feel like it, say, by an act of my will, I will forgive that person right now. Now, if you don't do that, you might as well just send your saddle home. You're all through. Forgiveness is a requirement. And in the church, when that person says, I was wrong, will you forgive me? There must be an instant forgiveness. But only 70 times 7 a day, right? Only 490 times a day per person. Jesus was saying, you just keep on forgiving and keep on forgiving and keep on forgiving. I think it would be helpful for us to... We've been talking a lot about forgiveness. We've been talking about reproving. We've been talking about restoring. I think it would be well for us to consider a few of these definitions before we close this, this particular point. Number one, we've been talking about judging another person's sin. Matthew, Matthew 7, 1 says, Judge not that ye be not judged. And uh, discerning, that, that we're, the one word we want to talk about is judging here. We're not to judge one another. I was talking to a young man yesterday, and I said to him, he was talking about not fellowshipping with other denominations. I said, would you tell me something? How many bodies does Jesus Christ have? He said, just, just one. I said, well, how many churches does Jesus Christ have? He says, well, just one. I said, you're sure about that? Yes. I said, do you believe that every one of those members of that body are in that particular group that you're fellowshipping with? Well, I know of some other Christians that, that aren't in that group. And I said, are they part of that same body? Well, they don't fellowship. I said, that is what I asked. You're talking about the label. I'm talking about the body of Christ. I said, are they all one? Or is Jesus got three or four bodies? No, he's only got one. And it really struck him. He had not thought of it in that light before because the fellowship that he was in says, if you aren't a part of this particular strike, now, you see, when you cross your T, you don't cross it up that way. You cross it exactly this way. And when you dot your I, you don't put it over here or over here. You put it right directly above, see? And he said, now, if you don't do that, why, you're just out. We don't fellowship with you. And he was talking about one of the servants of the Lord who was a very well-known man. I said, now, I, I, do you believe that that man's been born again of the Spirit of God? And he kind of stuttered and stammered a little bit because he's been told so many times he can't fellowship with that man. I said, now, wait a minute. I didn't ask you if you agreed with everything he did. I said, he probably has done things that you can't do and I can't do, but do you, do you believe he's saved? Well, I finally had to say, well, probably so. I said, okay, if he's saved, what body is he in? <sighs> I said, is he in the body of Christ? Yeah, is he in the same body you're in? Boy, you know, almost hurt to say, hey, he's in the same body I'm in, you know? I said, he just may have a different function than you have, but don't judge him. He's the Lord's servant. Now, if he's living in sin... Deal with that sin, but don't judge him as an individual. Judging. There's a difference between judging and discerning their spiritual condition. That's a gift. When you're around someone, you say, I just, my spirit just, you know, kind of goes tilt a little bit. Something just isn't right. Now, that's discernment. And you begin to say, Lord, give me an understanding heart to know in my spirit. Help me to know how to minister to this person where they are. The Lord says we're not to judge someone else but we are to discern how many of you have been around a christian you know they really love the lord but you know that they're just playing around in the shallows they just don't know much of the deep things of god at all 
You sense it when you're talking to them. And others, you come around and just feel the joy and the peace and the love of God just all over you. See? But that, that's not judging them. That's, that's discerning. All right? The difference between the two is our desire and ability to give steps of correction. Can you see? Oh, goodness. i got to clear down the corner. I never look around, so you have to forgive me. Judging another is sin. Discerning their spiritual condition is a gift. The difference between the two is our desire and ability to give steps of correction. When you judge someone, you're not doing what God would have you do because your purpose is to expose them, to criticize them, to destroy them. But when you discern, as you discern the need in their life, you begin to seek the Lord for steps of correction. See the difference? Well, I don't dare take a whole lot of time to go into it further, but I'm in hopes that this series will have started you thinking in that direction. Next. Slander is telling the truth with a design to hurt. I don't know where to put that on that chart overhead where you can see it better. Slander is telling the truth with a design to hurt. Second, gossip is sharing detrimental information with those who are not a part of the problem or part of the solution. That's gossip. Well, you go around, have you heard? Did you know? That's gossip. Third, Reprove. In 2 Timothy 4, 2, it says to Timothy, Reprove, exhort, rebuke, with all long-suffering and doctrine. It says to tell someone his fault, to admonish, to convince someone of his error, to give evidence, to convict. When you are reproving someone, the purpose behind it is you expose, you say, This is a need, I see a problem here in your life. But you do it with the desire to admonish them, to correct them, to instruct them, to convince them of their error, and to give evidence to them so that they'll come under conviction. I didn't realize that was wrong. I've gone to young Christians before, and I said, now I understand that this, do you realize that this is a problem as far as Scripture is concerned? I didn't know that. But now here's what I would encourage you to do. See, now that's when you reprove someone, and you've got to, you've got to do it in love. Some people believe that if you reprove someone, you go rough, and you really come at them strong. But that's not true of reproof. The next one is rebuke, is the Greek word, epitomao. Epitomao in the Greek means to rebuke, and it means to command, to charge, to order, and to admonish. And then it says you are to exhort. Parakaleo. Parakaleo, exhort, means to beg, to urge, to encourage, to request, to ask to appeal to, to console, to comfort, to cheer up, to call one, a call to one side and urge to pursue a course of action. Now that's what Paul said to Timothy. I want you, first of all, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. It's bringing a person to the side and saying, here is an area of difficulty that the Lord has shown me, and I want to try to help you get this thing straightened out. Now that's different from reviling a person or judging a person or exposing a person. Now, what will happen if every Christian follows Matthew 18? What will happen if every Christian follows Matthew 18? Number one, gossip and slander will cease. If every Christian were committed to giving only a good report, gossip and slander would cease. If someone wanted to give a bad report, those around him would ask, Have you gone to him first? Are you telling us so that we can go to him with you? We should not hear a bad report unless we are part of the problem or part of the solution. What do you think would happen in the church if we all did that? Think about it. How many times did someone come up and say, Did you know about thus and such? Well, have you gone to him already with it? Well, no, no, I just want you to pray about it. Well, were you telling me so that I could go with you to him? That's all you'd have to say. That would do it, wouldn't it? You see what would happen in the church if we began to let our words agree with God's word? Am I part of the problem or am I part of the solution? Or are you just gossiping and slandering this brother or sister? Let's go to him. I'll tell you again why this, this strikes me too. I have to be very careful in the ministry. But one that really devastated me when I was in Bible school criticizing a professor. I was sitting in the lounge. I'd gotten a bad grade on one of my tests. 
and I was criticizing what a horrible teacher he was. He didn't know how to, to teach. He, these things weren't in his notes at all. They weren't in the reading material and on and on. And a brother, I, there were a group of young men standing around me, and I was just really laying into him. And one man stepped through the whole crowd, and he said, let you and me go see him. I said, why? He said, well, this is not for you to tell all these other students. If you have a grievance against that brother, let you, I'll go with him, and I want you to make this grievance known to him, and we'll see if what you're saying is true. If it is, then he needs to correct this thing. I said, well, I'm not going to go see him. He said, you better go see him. I said, why? I was a fairly new Christian. He said, because you're giving a report against this brother, and it's not fair to him because you're making others take up an offense against him. Let's go and talk to him. And I had to go and ask that teacher to forgive me. But let me tell you something. I was very careful after that. And if ever anything was ever said, almost automatically I'd look around to see if that brother was around, and I'd be careful what I said because I knew he'd nail me the next time if I did it again. What would happen if we follow Matthew 18? Next. Christians will edify each other. The steps of Matthew 18 are a built-in basis for giving and receiving loving correction within the body of Christ. We are to exhort one daily, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Third, loyalty will build security. When each member of the body of Christ knows that every other member is going to give only a good report about him unless he comes to him first, he experiences a deep sense of loyalty and security. On the other hand, when a bad report is given about another Christian before going to him first, it destroys fellowship and builds insecurity and suspicion within the group. A whisperer separated chief friends. Wouldn't it be a good feeling to know that no matter whatever happened in this church, no matter whatever happened in this church, you could say, well, I know one thing for certain. No one in this church will carry a bad report about me without coming to me first. They'll come and say, now, I've, I've heard something, and I want to know for sure. I want to know the facts. I don't want to say a word. I want to come right to you. Is this so? How can this be corrected? What did I do or what did I say that may have offended you? Or, or what, did, what, what was it about me that made you say what you said the way you said it to me? Was there something that I did that offended you? If so, I really want to know and I want to ask for forgiveness. But I don't want to carry a bad report about you. Can you imagine the love that would begin to flow here? If you knew that you knew no one would ever carry a bad report about you. Because our words were going to be in harmony with God's word. Number four. Physical health will improve. Proverbs 15:30. A good report nourishes the bone. The health of the whole body is the blood, and the blood is manufactured in the marrow of the bones. Therefore, the healthier our bones are, the healthier our bodies are. What does it say? A good report nourishes the bone. Have you ever seen a child when the child is doing something and you say, Jimmy? That was beautiful. You just did such a nice job. I'm so proud of you. Boy, they just strut all over the place. They just, just, they just got a good report. How about the husband that finishes a job at home, a, a honeydew job, and the wife says, oh, I just appreciate The neighbors come over and say, look at what such and such. Oh, just, didn't he do a fine job? You know, The guys, of course, they try to ignore it, but down inside they're just gurgling. You know, They got a good report. You know how some of the fellows, you try to hide it, you try to act like it's not important. When, the, when you come in the house and the wife says, look at here what Sam did here in the kitchen, look what he did here in the family room, and I know exactly what you're feeling because I do the same thing. But boy, you better do it. You love a good report, don't you? And that's exactly what the Word says, and we ought to give good reports about each other continuously. Husbands ought to give good reports about their wives, wives about their husbands parents about their children, children about their parents. It just breaks my heart when I hear children giving bad reports about their parents instead of going to their parents and saying there's a problem here. It breaks my heart when I hear parents giving bad reports about their kids. Oh, she's stupid. You know, she's dumb. She just can't learn anything. I think, oh, you're crushing a life there. You may not have found out what their bent really is. You may want to make them a math major when they're a home economics major. You might want to make a mechanic out of them when they want to be a pilot. Don't call your children, give bad reports about your children, because before long they will take up that bad report 
and carry it with them through life. A good report nourishes the bone. And a good report within this body, one to the other, continuously. There will be health in this body like you've never seen before. Good report nourishes the bone, Proverbs 15:30. Then the last one, the world will believe. The mark of a true Christian to the outside world is the quality of his love for other Christians. By this shall all men know that what? Ye are my disciples if, there's that word again, if ye have love one to another. Perfect love casteth out what? All fear. We have no need to fear if we know one another are giving good report about us. And if there's a report that can't be good, that we come immediately to one another and say, I want to be able to give a good report about you, but I've heard this and I want to make sure about it. You see the healing that can come? When the world sees Christians loving each other enough to follow God's steps of correction, as outlined in Matthew 18, they will believe that God did send Jesus into the world, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. My words must be in harmony with God's words, especially when storing a Christian brother or reproving a Christian brother. I know that if we will allow this to become a conviction in our homes, I know it's not an easy thing to have become a conviction in our homes. I know it's very, very easy for our homes to be the place where we let down and begin to criticize. Every home. And we have to begin to ask the Lord to correct our own tongue, to correct our own spirit, so that we only give a good report in order that later on, if we find a restoration of that brother or sister, we will not have to go back and feel shame because we shared that hurt, we shared that misunderstanding with others around about us, but we go directly to that person first and then take one or two more with us. And if necessary, bring them before the church. And if that doesn't do it, then treat them as a heathen or publican until they repent and then forgive and restore. But see to it that every day we refuse to make a bad report about another brother or sister. I want to tell you something. God's having to deal with me in this subject too. It's very, very easy sometimes when things don't go the way you think they're supposed to go and everybody doesn't do just exactly the way you think you ought to do to let a, a word come out of your mouth. And I, would, I don't know about you, but I'm asking right now that the Lord will do a healing in my heart that way too. I don't want ever to have a bad report about anyone coming out of my mouth, and God's going to have to deal with me in that area. If he deals with all of us in this area, I know that it can be the beginning of a real revival in this body. Do you know something? There are many churches today that are split in many pieces from this very thing. Brother such and such said, sister such and such said, well, yes, but you can't listen to them because did you know that they cheat? Did you know that? Horrible. Just tear the place. Well, they're just trying to run the church. They're just ramrodders, you know, all these harsh things that are said about people within the church. Our words must be in harmony with God's word, especially when reproving and restoring a brother or a sister. And if we truly love one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us, we must forgive others and love others and find out where they are and minister to them where they are. We may have to reprove, we may have to exhort, we may have to rebuke, but we'll do it with all long-suffering and doctrine, with deep love, deep-felt love for one another. I trust that this one point, number nine, will become a deep conviction in your heart, in your home, and that you'll begin to minister this truth to each other in your home. That you'll refuse to allow bad reports to come forth in your home. In your own heart. When you're out with other friends. And that when a bad report begins to come forth, that you'll be able to stop it. Just as we talked about there, you'll ask those questions. Have you gone to him first? Do you want me to go with him? With you to him? Am I a part of the solution or am I a part of the problem? If not, I really don't want to hear about it. You take it before the Lord and go to that person. Think of the healing that God can bring in a body if we'll just do this very thing. Father, I pray right now, just as David did, that you put a guard before my lips. 
that you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Father, I want to confess to you this morning that you've had to speak to me in this area and I want you to minister and deal with me in this area completely. I want my words to always be words of edification and not words that will expose or destroy or hurt anyone. And I pray, Father, that you'll just renew and restore within me and each one of us here this morning a deep sense of the responsibility we have of loving one another with a perfect love. By this shall the world know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. I ask that you just forgive and cleanse and that you'd put Allow the Holy Spirit to place within my heart an alarm this morning, an alarm that will go off every time there is evidence of this happening in my life, that I might ask you to forgive me and cleanse me, and that I might ask for forgiveness, and that none will need to worry about a bad report coming forth within this body, but that our words will be in agreement with the Word of God. That Jesus Christ will be honored and glorified in it all. In his name we do ask it. While your head is bowed, if the Lord is speaking to you this morning in this area, will you just tell him that, that you want to be everything you, he wants you to be? We ask him for forgiveness. Maybe it's maybe a need to go and talk to someone else that... A bad report has been coming forth from you, and you'll need to go to them directly and say, Will you please forgive me and get that thing settled, get it straightened out. I believe God wants to pour out his Spirit on this body in the days ahead. I believe he wants an anointing to come on it. But I believe it's going to, that, that sin can hinder it. Unforgiveness can hinder it. One aching in the camp can hinder it. By God's grace, let's not allow ourselves to be that aching. There might be cleansing and forgiveness. Father, thank you for the word that says, But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We ask for forgiveness and cleansing this morning, and ask, Lord, that there might come healing, that we might be able to be that vessel that would bring honor and glory to you because our lips are filled with good reports that are consistent with an agreement and in harmony with your word. In Jesus' precious name we do ask and for his sake. Amen. All that thrills my heart is Jesus, and as we try to finalize or finish up a series of messages that off and on have taken over a year, just a little over a year, we come to the tenth conviction, and that is my affections must be set on things above, my affections must be set on things above, not on things of the earth. We just finished the other one. My words must be in harmony with God's word, especially when reproving and restoring a Christian brother. And there were those that came and said that God spoke to them through that message and it caused them to get some things straightened out with other brothers and sisters. We thank God for that. Now the last conviction. And uh, sometime I hope I have the time to go back and listen to all the ten convictions myself again to remember what I said on the first, second, and third, and fourth ones because it's taken such a long time to get through them. But uh, this last one is a, like putting a, a crown on all of them. If this last one becomes a conviction in your life, the others will fall into line. My affection must be set on things above, not on things in the earth. Let's just, first of all, try to get a definition of the word affection. Now, I know some of you girls and guys say, oh, I know what affection is. But I want to give you a dictionary description of what affection is. Affection is one's inclination or tendency toward disposition to or fondness for something or someone. Let me try to elaborate on that a little bit. Affection is one's inclination or tendency toward something. What is your, to what do you tend all the time? Do you tend toward the things of God? 
Do you have an inclination toward spiritual things, or do you have an inclination toward things of the world, toward material blessings, toward popularity, toward importance? What do you tend toward? You know, the Scripture says in the Old Testament, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. That word in the Hebrew is more, train up a child according to his bent. What does he have interest in? Where do his interests really lie? And that is the area of his affection, her affection. Now, that has nothing that's not talking about correcting disobedience and rebelliousness, but it's saying find out what direction that one tends to go in and likes. One might like to work with his hands, another might like to think with his mind, another one might, you know, each one has a different thing about them. And your affection is the thing toward which you have a tendency to move, the thing toward which you have an inclination. Now, I can give you examples, as I know of people. There is, for example, Ed has a spirit of tinker in him. You put anything around Ed, and within 10, 15 minutes at the most, he can't stand him much longer than that. He wants to find out what makes it act the way it does and do the thing it does and why it sits the way it sits and why it clicks the way it clicks. And I couldn't care less. If it works, it works, you see. That is not my inclination. But his inclination is to find out what makes a thing tick. There are other people that just love sports. When they can get out there and get hit by somebody else and hear the grunting and the throbbing and all the rest of it, they just get it. That's not my inclination. I like sports, but it's not my inclination. Some people love to swim. You get them around water, you almost have to hog tie them. They want to get in the water. That's not my inclination. Some people, you show them an opportunity, business opportunity, and they begin to almost froth at the mouth. You know, they, just, they can just taste the opportunity there. Someone else, you give them an opportunity and they're afraid. They'll say, give me a job where there's some kind of security. You know, I want hospitalization. I want retirement benefits. They, they have a tendency toward the safe things of life. Something you have a disposition to. Your disposition toward something. Something that you are drawn to or something that you bring your attention to. Or a fondness for something or someone. Now, that's what we're talking about when we talk about affection. If you can find out what you have an inclination or tendency toward, a disposition to, a fondness for, you'll begin to find out where your, uh, your affections are centered right now. Jesus made a statement, he who is forgiven much, what? He who is forgiven much, what? Loveth much. What did he mean? If you take some person who has been deep in sin for many, many years and you bring them to a knowledge of the fact their sins have been washed away and they have received eternal life and they just can't show their love to Christ back enough. Well, they, they, they declare their affection. There's a new allegiance. There's a new confession of dependence upon a, a totally new source of life, and that's Jesus Christ. Their affections, is what Jesus is saying, are changed. Where they once loved the world, now they love Christ. Where they once hated uh, Christ, now they love Christ and hate the world. Their affections have been changed. So as we speak about my affections, my affections must be set on things above, not on things of the earth. It means that, and by the way, I, we're going to see some things here today, it is something that we will determine. Remember I told you not too long ago that love is not an emotion, just an emotion. It is a decision that we make. Where your affections abide or are setting is based upon an act of your will also. You know, some people say our will has nothing to do with it. I don't believe that. I believe God says you choose whom you will serve. And when you choose, you'll reap exactly what you have sown accordingly. Now, let's just check a few scriptures very quickly on affections. There are not a whole lot of them, but Romans 1, 26. Romans 1, 20, verse 26. <clears throat> now, this is speaking in Romans 1 and 2. You always remember Romans 1 and 2 is the area where Paul is speaking about those who have turned away from the true God and began to worship beasts and four-footed creatures and so forth and turned from the natural to the unnatural things. And after they've done these things, who forsake the knowledge of God and turn to these un unnatural things, verse 26 says, For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. 
That word vile means dishonorable or unnatural affections. God just turns them over. They step out from under his authority and are under the authority of Satan. Satan literally possesses them and they are driven and they have what God calls vile affections. The next one is found in Colossians, the third chapter. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Colossians 3, verse 5. Now, this is written to, to saints. That first big word there, what is it? Mortify. What does that mean? Put to death, crucify, or deaden. Now, he's talking about the individual. This is your job. Deal with it. Some people say, well, I've just committed that to God. That's great. The Scripture says you are to submit yourself to God and what? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The first word here is mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection. Inordinate affection. There's that word again. The word inordinate means lustful feelings or base desires. Mortify them. Crucify them. Put to death. Put them to death. Say, I will not think on those things. The Word of God says whatsoever things are true and honest, just, pure, holy, of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. I, by an act of my will, refuse in the name of Jesus to think upon these vile or inordinate affections, these base, lustful feelings. Evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, why did he say that's idolatry? Because these things in this verse of which he speaks, these inordinate affections, these are the worshiping of self. We put self before God, and that becomes idolatry because we're worshiping what we want rather than what God wants us to want. And so he says we're to put those things to death. Then in the same chapter, back to verses 1 through 3. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, and in some translations that word if is since, since ye then are risen or be, have been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. I'm sure that this tenth conviction Bill took from this verse. If you're then risen with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. What's that next word? Set. Set. It doesn't say sit. Set your affection on things above. There's that word again. Set your affection on things above. Now that word set is a word that you would use like I would say to you, we're going to go fishing tomorrow morning, Dave, so set your alarm clock for four o'clock. It's something that you find and choose where you're going to put it. Another term, another translation of that is be engrossed in the things above. Set your mind in such a way, set your affections in such a way like you'd set an alarm clock to where you will see to it that the things you think upon are the things that are up above. Now, that's not too hard to understand, is it? If you set your alarm clock, you say, now, tomorrow morning I'm going to get up at 6, uh, 7, you know, uh, 7.15. Well, if I get up at 7.30, I can still make it. You know what I mean? You choose where you're going to set it, and that's exactly what he says here about your affection. You choose and set your affection on things above. See, your heart is never going to be empty. It'll never, you cannot live in a vacuum. So God says there's only two masters. You serve the one, you love the one, hate the other, or you cling to the one and despise the other. So he says, you choose to think on things above. Don't let your life think on the other things. You will not be in a neutral position. You will think of one or the other. Satan is going to see to it that you think of one or the other, and you must choose and set your heart and your affections on things above. You cannot live in a vacuum. I guess the best way we can determine whether we're doing this or not is to ask you, what do you think about the most during the week? When you get up in the morning, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? Through the hours of the day, what seems to preoccupy your mind most of the time? Before you go to bed at night, what is the preeminent thought in your mind during that, the evening time? Because remember, it is whatever you have an inclination to or a tendency toward or a disposition to or a fondness for. What do you think of most during the day? The Scripture says that we're going to be very, very weird people. 
the world's going to think we're a fool. They're going to think we're very strange because we don't have the same affections and the same desires that they have. I've said it before and I'll say it again. That was the interesting thing for me. I never had to get rid of my non-Christian friends when I became a Christian and began to witness and testify. I mean, they let me go. They didn't want to be around. There was something about me. I was just totally different. I had really gone crazy, see, because my affections were different from theirs. When they would want to talk about Jesus Christ, they used it differently than I did, and I would tell them, hey, please don't do that. If I stood around and used your mother's name as a swear word, you'd be very upset, wouldn't you? But Jesus Christ is more precious to me than my parents. Don't use his name in front of me. Oh, you're a religious nut. But my mind was on what Jesus Christ was doing in my life, morning, noon, and night. Secondly, what would you hate to eliminate from your life more than anything else? If you knew something had to be eliminated from your life tomorrow, what would it be? What would be the first thing you'd think of? I hope it's not like some people during the Lent season, of which I spoke a couple years ago, where the daddy asked his boy what he's going to give up for Lent, and he said, uh, I'm going to give up uh, drinking liquor. And he said, well, I just saw you have a glass of wine yesterday. He said, well, I mean hard liquor. Oh. He said, what are you going to give up for Lent now, son? He said, I'm going to give up hard candy. What would you hate worse than anything else to give up? There are some people who would absolutely refuse, if it came down to a, a real question, for the sake of their testimony, to give up a job. That job would be more meaningful to them many times. I've seen people compromise on that very thing, where they knew that as a Christian they could not hold this Christian standard in that job I just heard recently of a fellow who worked for the, for the government in another state, and when they went to a party, he wouldn't even drink, take a, a glass of 7-Up or Pepsi or anything else in a glass, lest some people think that he was taking a drink with all the rest of them because they were all just having a drunken time. And he said, no, thank you, I don't care for any. The following Monday morning, his boss called him in and said, you know, you are so different, you just don't fit in with us anymore, and I, we're going to let you go. He says, what do you mean? He says, everything about you. You don't laugh when the jokes are told. You don't want to drink with the rest of the guys. You don't want to do anything. You're just stiff. And the fellow said, well, praise the Lord, if that's what it takes. And he lost his job. What would you hate to lose more than anything else in the world? Would you be willing, would you and I be willing to lose everything for our testimony for Jesus Christ? That tells us where our affections are. What if you were to have to lose your whole family for the sake of Christ? And don't put that out of the prospect of possibility because it's happening around the world today. In Russia, in China, North Korea, Germany, all over. People are being thrown into prisons, families separated, children taken away from them. But they're told, first of all, if you'll just quit preaching this thing to your children, you can keep them here at home. And they say, we cannot do that. We must lay upon their heart the principles of God's Word. And they said, well, then we'll take them from you, and they take them out of their homes and put them in schools to be trained. What would you hate to eliminate from your life more than anything else? Your house? Your automobile? Your friends? If you had to make a choice? What would be the last to go? Third, what do you spend most of your time and effort doing? Making a living? You know, some people spend so much time making a living that... Uh, that's all they can do. Where the Word says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Someone says, Brother Webb, do you mean to say we're just supposed to sit at home and just pray? No, that isn't what I mean at all. Scripture says, in fact, watch and pray. I can work and pray. Whenever I've had a job, I could work and pray and do a better job working. But my constant outcry was, Lord, I thank you for this job. I thank you for this opportunity to have a source of income, but my real heart's desire is to please you while I'm here, to serve you, to do it as unto you, and to keep my heart open so if you've got something else that you want me to do, I will be sensitive to what you want me to do. But Lord, while I'm here, I'm going to do the best I possibly can. You know, God is awfully good when you put him first. His promises are true. You'll never come to a place where you can't make it. He'll make a way for you. But what do we put all our efforts? Some of you young fellows, you're putting all your effort toward getting a girl. Don't you forget, you put the kingdom of God first and he'll bring the right one to you. You won't be able to get away from it. Girls, 
Don't get that panicky feeling like you're going to be an old maid at the age of 17 if you don't get married. If you walk in the center of God's will and put him first and hungrily desire his perfect will above everything else, he'll make that tall, dark, handsome brute come walking right into your life. And that guy won't be able to get away from you. He'll just be enamored with you because he sees the beauty of Jesus Christ in you if you're to be married. And I can put this in, interject this in here, believe me, the Word of God has a lot to say about the fact that there's a lot better things than just being married. Today, people think that because a girl or a guy doesn't get married, there must be something wrong with them. But Paul said in a lot of ways, it's much better you can serve the Lord with, without any distraction whatsoever. And as I said to the old farmer that never got married, he said his philosophy was it's better to go through life thinking or not having something you wish you'd have than to go through life having something you wish you wouldn't have gotten. And so he never got married. So the, the question, the third question is, what do you spend most of your time and effort doing? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Put that down indelibly, young people, on your mind. Not that you are going to die, but the day you repented of your sins and committed your life to Jesus Christ, God's word said, you died. You died. Now, you died to the world and you're made alive unto God and the things of Christ, and so that's why your affection should be set on things of God and things above and not on things of the earth. You know, some people, all they can think about is, I've got to get married, I've got to get married, I've got to get married. And then when they get married, they think, boy, what did I, what did I do? What did I do? Let, just seek God's face in that matter. Make that absolutely the most important thing. I can remember when I was in other churches, the only reason some young people ever came to church was because they got to see the girl, they got to see the boy. You could tell that it wasn't a spiritual hunger and a desire and a craving for the things of God. They would just be together like this, just you couldn't pull them apart. You'd say to the girl, could you come over here and minister in this, in this class over here? And the boy, no, no, no. Well, we got to be together. You, know, you knew their affections weren't on things above. Their affections are on things of the earth. You can tell they weren't dead. Hey, when you get married, you get married for a long time. Hello? But in the meantime... Seek those things which are above. You can't put God first and come out in the short end, even if it's talking about future marriage. Put God first. Let me read to you the second and third verses out of the Living Bible. Terrific. It says, let heaven fill your thoughts. Don't spend your time worrying about things down here. Get this now. You should have as little desire for this world as a dead man does. That's powerful, isn't it? You should have as little desire. Now, when it's talking about, let me, let me explain to you. It's not saying, it's not saying to the, the Christian that you shouldn't have any initiative, that you shouldn't have any drive, that you shouldn't have any goals. It's simply saying that those goals should be a means to an end that allows you to serve Jesus Christ more effectively. You might gain a million dollars tomorrow, but you should say, now, Father, thank you for bringing this into my life. I want to be responsible to you to see to it that this million dollars is used totally for the glory of God. Now, you see, you may have a million dollars then, but it doesn't have you. It should not have any more of a hold on you than it would on a dead man. Mr. Onassis, would you like a billion dollars? Can't use it. Would you like some of the gold and diamonds? Can't use it. How about your ship? Can't use it. He says, that's the way it ought to affect us right now. If it's going to try to get a hold of me, I don't need it. But if I can get a hold of it and use it for the glory of God, there's a vast difference. So that when God brings these things to me, my total purpose and determination is that my affections are set on things above, not on things of the earth. How can this forward the kingdom of God and his purposes? My relationship with a young lady or a young fellow, how can this relationship forward the kingdom of God? You hear me? I used to see couples in Bible college. I was embarrassed. You'd get around them and you'd almost get caught in the spray. It was terrible. Just, oh, 
I used to walk away saying, I don't believe this. You know, here's two Christian kids. And before long, they just couldn't wait. God told them they're supposed to get married. And it wasn't but a few years later, disaster after disaster after disaster. Why? Their affections were on things of the earth. Their goal was, I've got to get married. And that's not the goal that God wants for them. God's Word says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. See to it that your life is right in the center of God's will. Do you know, as I was walking with the Lord and was engaged to a very, very sweet Christian girl, very pretty Christian girl for 18 months, God spoke to me and said as I was at, went to Bible school and started seeking His face, that's not the one. And I mean tell you about turmoil. Turmoil? I just thought, well, she, I, I don't know how I could find a sweeter Christian girl. She just got high standards and really wants to serve the Lord and all these things. And God said, no. Now, you know, I could have plunged on his head and said, God, you must have made a mistake. I'm going to marry this girl. And I broke up with her, and as she'd walk down the hall, she'd look at me, and she'd have tears in her eyes, and I'd just walk around, and think, oh, I can't take this. And then one night, I walked into the lounge of the school, and here I was ready, they were supposed to go out on dates, and here another young fellow had asked her for a date, and I said, I know I can't take this. I went back to my room. God, what are you doing to me? She's dating another guy. I know he'll never satisfy her like I would, but yeah, <laughs> Lord, I just can't put up with this, you know. And I had to release that thing to the Lord, release that a relationship totally to the Lord. Do you know something? As wonderful as that girl was, I wouldn't go back for anything. There is no comparison. But I could have missed it had I not set my affections on things above instead of the things of the earth. I could have said, Lord, that relationship's too important. I'm going to go on through with it. Now, I mark it down again. We talked about planting seeds not too long ago. If we don't see this truth, we'll plant a seed that will bring deterioration later on, bring problems later on. These things should not affect us any more than a dead man inasmuch as we're only alive to the things of God and things above. Your real life is in heaven with Christ and God. Then over in Galatians, the fifth chapter. Galatians, the fifth chapter. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Now let me read verses 25 and 26 to you again out of the Living Bible. Verses 25 and 26 in the King James says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Will you listen closely to this? If we are living now by the Holy Spirit's power, if we are living now by the Holy Spirit's power, let us follow the Holy Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Then we won't need to look for honors and popularity which lead to jealousy and hard feelings. Isn't that terrific? If we're really led by the Holy Spirit, let's follow him in every area of our life. Then we won't have to look for popularity or honors which lead to jealousy and hard feelings. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts, the inclinations toward, the tendencies toward, the dispositions to, the fondness for and they've centered them on things above. Next Sunday morning, I'm going to give you an example from scriptures of a person who thought wrong, who lived wrong, and who died wrong because his affections were not centered on things above. I just want to ask you this morning, I didn't get as far as I wanted to in this message this morning, but I want to ask you, where are your affections this morning? During the week, when you think about the opportunities to come and worship the Lord with God's people, do you have a tendency or an inclination to be there at any cost? Or does that become a drudgery to you? Do you find other things of more interest? The Scripture says, kill those other things, those other attitudes. Put them to death. When it comes to reading God's Word and praying and witnessing and sharing with others and thinking about the kingdom to come and the things that God's going to do in your life. Is that your tendency? Is that what you're thinking of all the time? Or you always got your nose down to the grindstone wondering how you're going to make it through another day? If that's what you're doing, then begin to crucify those tendencies, those affections about self-security and so forth, recognizing that the Scripture says, again, seek first.
the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, I just want to say to you this morning that I, I know by experience that these things are true. As I look back now to the 20-some years that I have been in the ministry, my wife and I have earnestly tried at all times to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We've tried to crucify and mortify those things of worry and concern, you know, and always wondering how we're going to be. The Lord is our source. The Lord will make a way where there is no way. And God has been faithful, and I found out it pays to serve Jesus. The way of the transgressor is hard. The Scripture says that if we continue to allow our affections to be on things of the earth before long, those things will control us and those things will destroy us. And Jesus said, the reason I have come is that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The reason I tell you to mortify those affections, to crucify those vile affections, is because in doing so, you will begin to know what it is to live. Do we really know what it is to live in your relationship one with another? Do you seek to cause your affections to be toward Jesus Christ and consequently allow his spirit to cause you to have gentleness and meekness and faith and temperance and self-control and love toward one another? When these things begin to flow out of your life, God will bring forth fruit. God will begin to bring forth solutions in your life that nothing else will cause solutions to come forth. His word is absolutely true. I can stand on it. If he says, if I seek the kingdom of God first, everything else will be added unto me, I know that I know that it's true. Will you test God? Will you try God at that level? Will you find out that it's true in your own lives? Set your affection this week on things above, not on things of the earth. Begin to confess again what God's Word says. My words must be in agreement with God's Word. Remember that conviction? Begin to set your affections accordingly and see how God is going to work. Now, let me tell you ahead of time, when I say this, immediately the Lord Spirit just spoke to me. As soon as you begin to do it, look for trouble. Because if you've been flowing in the other direction for a long time, Satan's going to say, no, no, I don't want them to learn that secret. And then he'll begin to bombard you. And so you're going to have to just bind Satan in the name of Jesus, but begin to confess that I am going to set my affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Would you bow your heads in prayer this morning? Father, help us to be able to see what we've allowed to become most important in our lives. Help us to open our hands up and say, Lord, I, I let go. I, I just release myself right now from all these things. I release these things from myself. These things that I have thought were so important, I, I release them right now, and I just ask you to take them from me. And I want to be filled with the awareness of the kingdom of God. I want to be filled with the awareness that I'm not a citizen here anymore, that my kingdom is in heaven. I'm just an ambassador. I'm just passing through. Father, let the, the truth of this commandment in your word strike home this morning. That we'll begin to put every person, every place, everything in its proper order. Jesus Christ first, his perfect will in my life first, the kingdom of God first, God's plan and purpose for my life first before anything or anyone. And in the midst of doing God's will, I shall find his purpose and plan for my life. I'll even find his person for my life. Father, I just thank you and praise you that you do all things well. I thank you that your word is absolutely true. And that as these release these affections that are on earth, these worries, these concerns, these stresses to you, and begin to trust you to work all these things out, recognizing that they're not their own, they've been bought with a price, I ask that you bring forth fruit in their lives from it. Minister this truth to their hearts this morning. With every head bowed, I, may I just ask this morning, maybe... The reason your affections have not been set on things above is because you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master. You've never repented of your sins and asked Jesus Christ to come in and become, become Commander-in-Chief in your life. And you know that this morning that the Spirit of God has witnessed to you that these things are not real in your life because you've never been born again. If I were to ask you right now, if you were to die today, 
Where would you go in eternity? What would you say? You know. You know if you're lost or saved. If I were to ask how many know that if they were to die that they were to go to heaven, I'm sure a lot of people could raise their hand. But let me ask you, do you know this morning that you need to receive Christ? That you might have eternal life? If there be one like that this morning, will you slip up your hands and say, Pastor, pray for me. I need to make Jesus Christ Lord of my life this morning. I want him to take control of my life. I want to give my life to him. Pray for me this morning. Anyone? I've seen everything in life as under the clouds, under the, uh, just on a fleshly level. I didn't know that God had promised to be with me and to protect me and watch over me and keep me and direct me every day, but that's what I want in my life. I want to be led by the Spirit of God. I want to be His child. Pray for me this morning. Would you slip up your hand anywhere? Yes. Yes. Father, you see these hearts. Let the truth of your word come. The word says, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And I just ask this morning for these hearts that, first of all, that commitment will be renewed. This morning, I declare Jesus is Lord of my life. I declare that he is going to have his will and way in my life at any cost. I declare this morning that nothing else is going to deter God having his way in my life. I refuse the authority of Satan in my life anymore. I make Jesus Christ Lord right now. And then, Lord, lead them through those areas of difficulty, those areas where they need to change their affections to be what you want them to be. Minister this truth into our hearts. In Jesus' name we do ask it, and for his sake. But it's called, my affections must be set on things above, not on things in the earth. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm talking about convictions, not preferences. I'm talking about principles that should be established within the home that cannot be changed. So that your children will be able to know, I don't know what the world has to say out there, but I know where we stand at home. I don't care what the world does. I know what God's Word says, and consequently, based upon the Word of God, the truth of God's Word, these are my convictions. The world is looking for those who have convictions, not preferences. And this conviction is a necessity in order for us to be everything that God wants us to be. My affections must be set on things above and not on things in the earth. Now, last week, we talked about the definition of affection, one's inclination or tendency toward, one's disposition to, fondness for something or someone. If you want to know what your affections are, that sums up what your affections really are. What interests you the most? What draws you the most? What has the greatest impact or influence upon you? What would you hate to get rid of more than anything else? What would you miss more than anything else? Whatever that thing is, that's where your affections are lying right now. And we said last week a little bit about the Scriptures. The Scriptures talks about vile affections. The Scripture talks about inordinate affections, which are in unnatural affections, dishonorable affections, base desires, lustful desires. And so Colossians sums it all up for this conviction. Set your affections. If ye then are risen with Christ, set your affections on things above. We said last week that's like setting a clock. We said that last week that's like driving a stake. It means by an act of your will determine that your affections are going to be set on things above. Not too long ago, you remember I preached on the subject renewing of your mind, and in there it commanded us whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, holy, of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. And I said, this is my hand. I tell my hand what to do, and it obeys me. Close, open, point, whatever it does. Whatever I tell it to do, it does, because it's my mind, and therefore the Word of God tells me, knowing that, um, that's my hand, my mind is also my mind, and I can tell my mind, you will think these thoughts. Somebody says, I can't control my thoughts. Yes, you can. If you couldn't, God wouldn't tell you to. He says, don't think on these things, but think rather on these things. 
Now here, he says, as far as your affections are concerned, don't allow your affections to be placed upon things of the earth. Don't allow your affections to become vile. Don't let them, to be, let them become inordinate, but cause them to be set on things above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of the Father. It says the reason for that in the Living Bible, you should have as little desire for the world as a dead man does, because they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. Now, the reason we want to emphasize this is because God says, as believers, we're not citizens of this world, but we're just passing through as pilgrims, and this is a preparatory time for eternity. If we could only make our eyes be fastened upon the fact that we're only here for a very short span of time. Time is nothing in comparison to eternity. It is just a passing thing. James tells us, James 4.14, for what is your life? For what is your life? Some people say, well, my life just seems like it's going on forever. The Word of God says it's a very fleeting thing. It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. And so many times we set our affections on the things of this vaporous ex existence and forget that we're only here for a short period of time. I want you to notice someone who did that very thing in Luke, the 12th chapter. Would you look at it with me? Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. It's called the parable of the rich man or the rich fool. Luke, the 12th chapter, beginning with verse 16 through 21. I want to read it with you. It's interesting. In verse 15, he says, And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? He thought within himself, saying. This isn't in my notes, but let me ask you, what do you say to yourself? What do you say to yourself? Oh, I know you talk to yourself from time to time. It's more fun to stand around and watch people from time to time. They'll stand there and talk to themselves. But here's a fool talking to himself. This is what a fool says to himself. Now notice, he says he, within himself he was talking now, saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruit. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. What a soliloquy. Sometimes just mark all the eyes, mys, mine, and, and all the things that he declared there concerning those possessions. What shall I do? I have no room. My fruits, I, this will I do. I will pull my barns. I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, so thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said unto him, what? I think we can learn from this, can't we? Do we ever talk to ourselves like this? What am I going to do with my savings account? What am I going to do with my house, my car, my possessions, my children, my husband, my wife? God says, hey, you're being a fool now. In fact, he says, don't even say that tomorrow you're going to go do thus and such. Because you have no assurance that you're even going to be here tomorrow. But rather say the Lord willing, tomorrow I will go do thus and such. And so here in the 20th verse, But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 